The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. markets snap a two-day losing streak and the 10-year Treasury yield hits an 11-year high as markets eye the Fed policy meeting starting today. China's central bank holds rates laying bare the policy gap. Meanwhile, the Bank of Japan is expected to follow suit this week despite inflation hitting an eight-year high. Elsewhere, Germany turning to the Gulf as it looks to plug the Russian gas gap with a deal expected to be struck with Qatar. But Bill Finger CEO Thomas Schulz tells CNBC Europe has answers to the energy storage on its doorstep. There is enough infrastructure for energy available. Take the nuclear power, what we have in Europe. Of course, the countries only using a part of their infrastructure, a part of the available energy, they are coming more and more under speed. Plus, Ford shares reversing in uh, extended trade after the automaker warns of an additional $1 billion in cost for the third quarter, blaming the charge on supply chain problems. Stock market stateside snapping a two-day losing streak back in the green. Big moving stocks to the upside. Names that have been battered uh, at a sector level. Material stocks that were tracking lower last week. Uh, one of the, the underperformers for the market components actually won the market performers. Also noting Apple stock too. Big move to the upside. That stock has been under a little bit of pressure of late. So it was a role reversal. Investors getting back into these big names. But to keep in mind, we've got a, a key risk event for markets being the Fed two-day meeting. Uh, many are still steering about the potential for 100 basis points that a 1% move instead of 75 basis points. Also, the potential for terminal rates to be higher at the end of the day. So there is still a lot on the table for investors to stew about. Worth noting the underperformers of the market, they were in the healthcare space. The likes of Moderna, as we saw the US President Joe Biden declare that the pandemic around COVID-19 was over in the United States. So a big reset for those particular vaccine makers. But uh, undercurrents too, as we take a look at the bond market and treasuries certainly impacted as investors tried to price around the potential for more aggressive rate hikes. We saw on the two-year 3.94 where we're trading. This is the highest level that we settled at since 2007. At the same end, uh, 2011 numbers we're looking at on the 10-year. So we're going back in history as we take a look at some of these levels. On the 10-year, we've traveled, as you can see, just shy of 3.5 at this 3.48 level. The dollar implications, given the high yields we are witnessing, and this is how we're tracking this morning, on the back foot is the story for most of the currencies versus the greenback. Sterling weakening 114.26. We're just drifting off the rates on euro dollar. You can see resetting even closer again to parity despite lifting up to uh, recent levels above that. Dollar yuan rates are stronger and you can see the dollar gaining versus the ruble. And let's take you elsewhere to what we're seeing uh, across on futures today. We are currently tracking in the green at this stage. Not a huge amount of direction to the upside 
on the back of that green we saw yesterday that still indicated a positive, suggesting that uh, clawback territory is how the market is positioning at this point. Good morning to you. Good morning. Let me ask you what I think is a trick question. What is the market more concerned about at the moment? Is it inflation and CPI and what's going to happen on the rates in the back of it, or is it recession? I think it's the rate story this week, potentially. Mm, I think it's changed. And I think almost imperceptibly it happened with one event. I, I agree with you, and I have agreed with you for a very long time, mm. that it is CPI and it is the implications there. And of course, as we'll hear from John Hardy in a short while, that is driving the dollar as well with those interest rate expectations. But I think the FedEx story changed everything. And I think the fact that the market plummeted on the back of that as well, pretty much that FedEx warning about global trade and about uh, the constraints thereof on the demand side. I think that may be perhaps one of the most, actually I was going to say subtle pivot, but there was nothing subtle about what uh, FedEx had to say. It's like a big dark cloud on the market. I, I don't uh, disagree that I think it's an important factor, but for me, the rate story this week, the fact that inflation's just not coming down mm. as fast as many had hoped. The, you know, we keep getting served up the story that at some point you will see those rates hit and then inflation will really cool off base effects as well. But it's just not happening at this point. And I think that just sets us in territory where we have to keep rates high for longer, which nobody wants, or even get to a higher terminal rate, yeah, which is also yeah. seen. And look, rates clearly are, are not going to be back where they were for a very long time. But are rates going to get up much above 4 4.5%? Possibly not. Has gasoline declined aggressively? Yes. And that is you know, one of those major inputs that affects a lot of um, appetite for consumer product, appetite for spending more money, appetite for consumption in a, an economy which is two-thirds driven by services. And so I, I think, I don't know, I just get the feeling there's a subtle pivot going on, whether the market realises it or not, that actually inflation pressures will begin to abate at the highest levels, albeit still be exacerbated compared to where we were. Uh, and now it's the recession we're going to start worrying about. See, I think the market is second-guessing itself now, whether it's truly baked in the extent of the increases. I mean, you mentioned not much more than four and a half percent, but uh, there were some reports crossing yesterday that you could get to see a five percent handle. And I was asking Patrick Armstrong over mm. Plurimi whether that was even baked into any expectations. And he said no. Yeah. So, I mean, that does tell you. And I think when the inflation number crossed the other day and everyone thought they had 75 basis points priced in fully covering all bases, but then they went, well, we didn't think about a one percent move. That wasn't in any of the scenarios. So I think it's this quick regrouping for the worst case scenario, just in case. There, there is that, uh, you know. Yeah. I occasion. think the president was very testy, wasn't he, about inflation in that interview we played yesterday. Right, um, so uh, as Karen was saying, Fed officials will kick off a two day meeting later today with the FOMC expected to hike rates now by 75 basis points. Of course, there had been initial speculation at some stage last week that 100 basis points was on the cards. Uh, CPI jumped 8.3% in August. It didn't actually jump 8.3% in August, did it? That was an annualised figure. Uh, cooler than July, but hotter than expected, prompting fears that price pressures are more persistent than initially thought. The Fed will also update its summary of economic forecasts up until 2025. Well, good luck with that, including a revised dot plot. Uh, World Bank President David Malpass told CNBC it is crucial that the Fed reassesses its plans as the situation evolves. Policy changes are really important, course corrections, uh, in order to get more growth, more investment, more production going, that pulls down inflation. So far, it's all been about restraint. We're going to try to slow, uh, you know, stop the overheating of the economy. Uh, but on a global basis, there's not overheating. You know, lots of people are really already in a deep recession. 
Right, um, Guggenheim's Scott Minard says he expects a 75 basis point hike, but that a full percentage point increase uh, would be better. Interesting. Uh, Minard also warned the Fed's moves to curb inflation may not end well for some investors, telling CNBC the Fed will push until something breaks. Well, that's interesting. John Hardy, head of FX strategy at Saxo Bank. Goodness me, John, we've seen a few of these over the years, haven't we? Um, is something breaking? There you go. Let's pick up on Minard's comments. Uh, I don't think anything's breaking yet. I do uh, agree with the general notion that the Fed is, is forced into a position to continue to hike until something does break. But, uh, uh, I, you know, the current lay of the land does not suggest anything's broken just yet. Yes, we're under pressure in terms of broader risk sentiment, that CPI figure spooking markets, uh, talk of 100 basis points, etc. But um, the Fed really has no choice but to stay on message. Um, and if, if this is broken, then uh, I, I hate to see what's uh, coming next, because I think we're not quite there yet. Yeah, John, why don't you enter the debate, which I don't know the answer to, so I can't be wrong for once. Um, but, but, uh, but I just don't know if the market is more worried about CPI than recession or should be more worried about recession than CPI. I don't know where you are on this one. Uh, I don't think the market is as worried about a, a, is worried about a recession, but that it's not really priced for a recession. Uh, so I think the the pricing of recession is is not there yet. I think the pricing is mostly about where the rate is and where the rate is going to go. So the the recession pricing is not necessarily there. Uh, and yes, the Fed is is uh, simply following incoming data. The the market knows that, and it tried to price this sort of deceleration or pivot, and it got itself burned on that, and and for good reason because the Fed can't afford to pivot until it's uh, uh, until it's on top of inflation. So I think that message, it just has to stay on that message. It has to raise that 2023 forecast uh, to above where the market is. And I think that's what this uh, FOMC meeting this, this week is mostly going to be about more than the 75 versus 100 basis points uh, uh, question. John, can I ask you then about terminal rates because they have moved a long way from the start of the conversation. Where do you think we ultimately end up on terminal rates and what could be actually the worst case scenario? Uh, I wouldn't dare to guess the worst case scenario, but I do think uh, we are in a phase where we're going to have to continue to see that so-called terminal rate uh, anticipation raised and, and raised considerably. And that's why I mentioned the 2023 uh, dot plot forecast. I think it's important for the Fed not only to sort of meet where the market where it is for this year, maybe very slightly exceed on the median forecast, but to go ahead and put the 2023 forecast a bit higher towards that 5% level. I think that's a, that's a key sort of uh, development that, that would indicate the Fed is remaining on the hawkish uh, message here. So I, I think 5% is, is a likely uh, you know, terminal rate or where this, this cycle ends up, somewhere around there. And John, can we talk about what's happening in FX world then? Because no matter what uh, other central banks say at this point, it seems like dollar is king, even though we had a slight improvement on hawkish commentary from the ECB. A euro is now faded. We've even got uh, some strong numbers from Japan on uh, inflation now, an eight-year high, the core rate 2.8% year over year uh, in August. What are you expecting to see in terms of pushback against the greenback at some point? I think it's really about the the dollar peaks when the Fed has peaked and when the Fed has essentially broken something. So the other central banks are looking at their currency. At, you know, Bank of Japan uh, is, is, uh, has been an exception until recently and realizing that they have to match the uh, the U.S., the, the Fed, where it's uh, at its pace of hikes. And that's what we're seeing this week. Sort of 75 basis points is the new 25 basis points. You have the Riksbank from Sweden today. They're even talking about 100 basis points uh, potential there. Uh, Swiss National Bank, the, there are a number of banks that are hiking 75 basis points. But I don't see the dollar peaking for the cycle until we get to the uh, sort of peak, getting towards anticipation of that peak terminal rate being wherever 
that peaks out. Uh, I argue around 5%. Uh, and then we see the anticipation recession and the Fed eventually starting to to roll over and stimulate again. We're just not there yet. So, uh, you know, it's all about the direction of the Fed and is it getting tighter? And I think the dollar follows uh, that trajectory. John, um, very ungentlemanly, I mentioned your longevity in these markets, but it's called experience. So I'm going to draw upon that as well. Have you ever seen the question over credibility of the central banks, given their misanalysis of the situation over the last 18 months, more tested than it is now? If so, do they have any credibility left if so, do we trust what they're going to do next on interest rates? Well, uh, I think arguably yes. Uh, if you look at the, where Bernanke was uh, back in 2007 and, and predictions around what the Fed was going to do or what the economy was going to, going to do in the teeth of that, what was a coming and galloping financial systemic crisis. Uh, I think the Fed has, has long shown that it is hopeless at forecasting the economy. I think that remains the case. And, and it really, it's uh, are the central banks largely irrelevant. They're simply reacting to the incoming situation. And I think uh, for the cycle, it's going to become a, uh, there's going to be a bigger focus on the fiscal side than on central banks, which are becoming rapidly becoming an auxiliary to uh, the reality on the ground and whatever the fiscal side does. So uh, maybe, maybe eventually we have to say, do central banks really matter that much? except as a function of reacting to what's what's going on uh, in the background rather than uh, being the masters of the universe, as they've been called before. Yeah, yeah from master of the universe to, and I think I'm quoting you right, hopeless uh, on predictions and more irrelevant. John, that's really amazing what you just said, so I'm going to dig into it a little bit deeper. If we are then going to fix fixate, start looking more at the fiscal side, I don't know where the headroom is in this current era. I know where it was when interest rates and inflation were zero. I don't know where the headroom is when you've got 240% debt to GDP uh, in Japan, when you've got a growth and stability pact in Europe that is basically now going to be admitting that 100% is the new norm, uh, with a lot higher for many other countries as well. What happens on that fiscal front if we, that is where we're now going to focus? Well, the sovereign has to be funded. So in the next recession, if we imagine a, a, you know, a government that is unable to fund itself via tax revenues, you have to have what? The central bank funding it with uh, printed money. So I think we, that's why we're in a new inflationary cycle, because the fiscal, sorry, the monetary policy side becomes an auxiliary to whatever the fiscal demands are. Uh, and, and that's what we'll see once we're uh, somewhere in 2023, uh, in the case of the U.S., much deeper than I think the market has anticipated before. We see the U.S. in recession, and we see the uh, uh, we see the EU in recession already uh, over this winter. So that's what I see: uh, much higher reset uh, of inflation uh, due to many factors. But uh, the, the the sovereign will remain funded, and who does that? It is it is the central bank. John, can I round out the conversation and ask you about the Bank of England later this week because the market is trying to work out whether we get a similar size to move 75 basis points to the Fed, whether we're in this catch-up mode. But it doesn't feel as though Andrew Bailey is the type of central banker here that's going to be swept up in the euphoria. I think they're saying uh, play the, the man, not the game. And effectively here, if you're trying to price around Andrew Bailey and what he will uh, try and achieve at the central bank here, what's likely in your book? Well... <laughs> Well, Andrew Bailey has been a very difficult one for this market to price. Uh, we've seen that since late last year, and I guess that remains the case. But uh, let me let me just say that if, if the Bank of England fails to hike 75 basis points, uh, let's let's shield our eyes for what's going to happen to the pound here. It, it just the, the Bank of England has to go 75. It has to match its global peers here. When we've seen cable trading to the lowest level since 1985, uh, it would really be a tone deaf, um, uh, quite a tone deaf performance from from the Bank of England if they don't go the 75 basis points. 
uh, at this week's meeting. So that's that's firmly what I expect. I wouldn't be, you know, it's possible they go 50, but I, I really think it's more likely they do the 75 basis points. John, thank you very much for setting the scene for us. Uh, appreciate the time. John Hardy with us, head of FX strategy at Saxo Bank. Over in China, the central bank maintained its benchmark lending rates in spite of a weakening yuan and tighter rates around the world. Beijing's zero-COVID policy, along with a raft of weaker data, has prompted concerns over China's economy, with the PBOC cutting the loan prime rates in August. That sparked a depreciation in the offshore yuan, which breached 7 to the dollar for the first time since July 2020. And for more on the outlook for China's economy, you can check out cnbc.com. Let's take a look at Japan. I mentioned this earlier. Japanese core inflation rose 2.8% in August on the year, hitting a nearly eight-year high amid wider pricing pressures. This coming through from raw materials and weakness in the Japanese yen. All this ahead of the Bank of Japan's meeting later this week. Inflation in Japan has now outperformed the central bank's 2% target for a fifth straight month. Well, JP Ong joins us now from Singapore with more on the Asian market action. JP, good morning to you. Good morning to you, Karen, as well. And we are looking that so far, when you look at the equity picture here in, in, uh, in Asia, it's looking rather encouraging. But well, I, well, is it enough for us to call it a terrific Tuesday? I might hold off on making that call at the moment because we remember that markets are still cautiously awaiting a slew of central bank decisions, among them the Federal Reserve's decision in about 36 hours. Will they or won't they out hike rates aggressively once again to arrest inflation stateside and across the world? And could this actually turn this green screen into red in a matter of days? Well, so far today, this could just be markets just trying to lock in some of these gains before that momentous decision, not just from the Federal Reserve, but a number of other central bankers in Europe and also in Asia, the Bank of Japan as well, set to make their decision in a couple of days as well. But so far, so good. We're seeing some encouraging gains from the Nikkei 225 returning from that extended weekend. They're up by about four-tenths of a percent out in Tokyo, 27,673 points. We are seeing the ASX 200 in Australia also doing quite well today. They're up by about 1.2% in Sydney at 6,801 points, give or take, they're rounded up. Um, mainly Chinese markets also looking quite encouraging today. Shanghai and Shenzhen both up by about half a percent and one percent each. I do want to focus on the Hang Seng Tech Index because it's going to be very interesting to look at as well. We're seeing the Hang Seng Tech Index actually outperforming the broader Hang Seng in Hong Kong. And this could have something to do also with some potential progress with regards to talks between U.S. and Chinese auditors. As we know, U.S. accounting authorities are actually in Hong Kong right now visiting the offices of PwC and KPMG to look at audit reports from Chinese companies, and if they can come to resolution and actually get, take one step closer towards a potential auditing framework, this could actually avert a potential delisting of a number of Chinese tech companies that are listed in New York, and thus also we're seeing tech companies in Hong Kong doing quite well in today's session. But perhaps one thing that will be more interesting to look at in the coming days will be the forex space here in the Asia-Pacific region. And when you look at uh, currencies so far today, we're seeing the Japanese yen and the Chinese yuan being the two things to watch. You referenced a while ago China keeping their loan prime rates actually unchanged, and that is the big question mark and trouble. Unlike most of the West and the rest of the world, China is not really facing inflationary pressures, and they're actually facing a different conundrum. It's that economic slowdown for the world's second largest economy. You can call it, you can like it, uh, link it to the possible COVID-19 lockdowns that have really hit China hard. You can also link it to some of the issues with regards to the beleaguered property sector, but this is something we'll have to watch out for. They will have to keep the support, the yuan today, just uh, staying flat, a bit, a bit firm at just about 
about 7 to the greenback. The Japanese yen also worth looking at ahead of the BOJ's decision at 143 spot 32. Keep in mind, Japan's also looking to reopen their borders and ease quarantine requirements on incoming travels in October. So any tourists going to Japan could find a little bit more bang for their buck if they actually enter the country and resume coming back in. But all eyes on the Fed in about 36 hours and what Jerome Powell and friends might actually do stateside. Back to you guys. All right. Many thanks for that. So, coming up on the show, our Italian election coverage continues. Uh, Jumana has hot-footed it from Sicily up to Milan to take a look at the country's banking sector. And for more on the countdown to tomorrow's Fed decision, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Karen, the start of this read makes me wondering what was wrong with yesterday's coverage. Uh, it says here, our coverage of the Italian election steps up today. Oh, I thought it was pretty strong yesterday. I thought it was pretty good yesterday, but there you go. Producers say it steps up today with a look at the country's banking sector. Now, Italian banks have had a difficult year dealing with the same headwinds as their peers across the continent. Recession fears, surging inflation and a single currency trading at 20-year lows. But the sector is on sturdier ground than in 2018 for the last election. Is it? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, a dip in valuations has made the biggest names increasingly attractive. Um, okay, well, uh, and they could benefit from a further hawkish ECB expected to continue raising rates. As you might know, there is nothing about that read into you that I liked there. I have to be honest with you. I thought it was very subjective. I thought it was very opinionated and actually pointing potential uh, opinions on the market as fact. Now, let's get some facts from you. Good morning to you. Nice to see you in Milan. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Steve. Well, hopefully I can step things off a little bit today. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about the energy crisis. Today, we are going to talk about the banking sector in Italy because uh, historically, the banking sector has been right at the epicenter of the multiple financial crises uh, that we've witnessed, uh, starting from Lehman to 2012, and obviously, uh, as we head into the next elections and potentially into an economic recession as well. Now, the takeaway, Steve, just to give you some factual evidence, is actually from a, a, a credit quality standpoint, from a capital standpoint, the Italian banks are actually looking much better, better place today. If you take the likes of Intesa and Unicredit, for example, the two largest Italian banks, you look at their CET1 ratios back up above 14 percentage points. Now, this is after uh, years of building capital buffers. They have increased their profitability, which in turn has helped improve the dynamics of the balance sheets. Equally, the credit quality, as I mentioned, we've seen a vast reduction in non-performing loans just over the last couple of years. A lot of uh, uh, underwriting is now taking place and these banks are a lot more discerning about the type of lending activity that does goes 
that does go on. So just to give you some numbers here, in TESA, 2018, non-performing loans were around 8 percentage points. Now we're sitting at around 3 percentage points. So there has been significant improvement on the balance sheet side of things. And then, again, we talk about rising interest rates in the context of the ECB. Clearly, that is a positive for the Italian banking sector as well. So those are the positives. Now, the flip side is, of course, that constant linkage between the banking sector and the sovereign, this bank-sovereign feedback loop, which is something that emerges every time there is pressure on borrowing costs for Italy. And it's something that the ECB are very, very well aware of. If you remember, even before they introduced this anti-fragmentation tool, there was a lot of talk about favorable financing conditions. Well, if you think about favorable financing conditions in the context of the borrowing rates of the sovereign trickling down uh, to the broader economy, banks are key in that respect. And you need to make sure that the banks are able to fund themselves in order for the corporate economy to keep ticking along as well. So uh, from that perspective, uh, there are some potential headwinds to come, especially as we head into uh, the elections on September 25th. Unknown what the outcome is going to be, though it does look at this point like we're going to get a complete shift in the government towards the right. And then the second angle uh, to consider as well here is just that the economy itself is heading for a potential um, economic recession uh, coming up in the next couple of months. Yesterday we were talking about the severity of the likely energy crisis. You hear you know, many energy suppliers, corporates that are struggling to stay solvent, get liquidity, and that is one of the reasons why the government has been putting out so much fiscal support. And on that point, I think it really is important because if you go back and look at the times of the pandemic, Remember, before uh, all of this support came in from uh, the government during the pandemic, there was a lot of concern that the NPLs would start rising substantially and that would have a knock-on effect to the banking system. That didn't actually materialize because government gave so much assistance. And this is exactly what the type of response that we're seeing now out of the outgoing Draghi government. Just one final note, because if we are talking about the Italian banking sector, I do have to mention Monte de Pasqua. I'm going to mention it very, very quickly. But essentially, this has been a trouble bank in Italy for many years now. It was uh, received a state bailout in 2013, in partially nationalized in 2017, 64% owned by the state. It's done multiple cash calls over the last 10, 14 years or so. But again, Monte de Paschi, if you look at their NPLs, have reduced substantially in the last couple of years, from 30% in 2018 to 3% today. They are a lot more profitable. And so you could say from an acquisition perspective, a lot more attractive target, especially given that the balance sheet is a lot cleaner than it was. There were some talks last year that maybe Unicredit would consider a takeover in Monte de Paschi, but they couldn't quite agree on the terms with the state. One of the major issues or one of the uh, major economic things that uh, the new government will have to think about is the future of Monte de Paschi because the state does have that 64% holding in it. It's going to be a, a key determinant of uh, where this bank goes in the coming years. Jaman, I want to pick up on some of those points because uh, it felt as though Unicredit didn't want the tentacles of uh, Monte de Pasca de Siena attached to it, that it might pull it under effectively just as it was trying to get back into good shape. And we had that very interesting interview coming through uh, from Andre Ancel when he was at Handelsblatt, who was talking about just having to execute on the bank's performance to try and close the gap with its peers across Europe, simply just self-help measures. But that's in contrast to what is still this looming threat that if we get a, a gas cutoff from Russia entirely, that you get the downgrade of the sovereign and then the downgrade of the banks by default, uh, which seems to be just a, a huge issue that despite all the self-help, there's still a big risk from external factors. 
Yeah, and I think that's precisely why when investors think about Monte de Pasque and its future, they see it more as a potential acquisition target than sort of a standalone bank. And there have been multiple CEOs that have taken helm at Monte de Pasque over the last couple of years, over the last decade. There have been over five of them. But a new CEO came in the beginning of this year, again, with a focus on being prudent, prudent balance sheet management, reduction of those NPLs, again, as I mentioned, sitting at three percentage points there. And really where we go from here is going to be a function of those state aid rules with EU, for example. Um, when, the, when the nationalization took place in 2017, one of the uh, conditions from the EU was that this bank would have to return to profitability, would have to clean up its balance sheet, but then also eventually the state would have to exit its position. And you think of the likes of Fratelli d'Italia, the leader of Fratelli d'Italia, Giorgia Maloney, typically her motto has been Italy first. She's more in the nationalization camp versus the privatization camp, especially if it comes at a cost uh, to job cuts, to um, you know, potential uh, tremors uh, as far as uh, employee hiring is concerned. And, and that, again, is one of the major uh, topics that she's going to have to think about if potentially she is the next Italian prime minister. And just as you were saying about um, Unicredit too, I think you know this is also a topic that will have to be talked about again, reinvigorated again, once the new government comes in, because Unicredit couldn't come to an agreement with the draggy government about the extent of state support to Monte Paschi um, in terms of a cash inflow. But we are looking at a different bank, say, a, a couple of years later, a different government, and potentially those talks could uh, come to the fore once again. So a lot to consider about with the, concerning the path forward for Monte de Paschi and certainly for the banking sector as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.